Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. As snow has already fallen in Minnesota, I'm settling in for a long fall and winter season of cold weather and podcast sessions. Today's episode is somewhat timely as it occurred in the fall of 2016. It will again address the issues and dangers of toxic relationships and hopefully offer insight and awakening for those who find themselves in a dangerous situation. But before we tackle this tragic case, let's quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In 1786, the American frontier only extended to the heart of the Appalachian Mountain region in what is now eastern Tennessee. While Spanish explorers and French traders had traveled through the western lands of the United States, over 80% of the land that is now today's United States was occupied by Native American tribes living off the land in true wilderness. As European settlers moved west after the War of Independence, establishing settlements was a dangerous endeavor. Native American tribes, while often peaceful, were great warriors and had been fighting each other using techniques adapted for the mountains and dense forests. It took rugged and hardy people to settle these lands, and they often built fortified log buildings and walls to protect themselves from attacks from Native Americans and the region's apex predators. The location for the fort and settlement relied greatly on access to clean water and fertile lands. In 1786, two explorers built a fort along the James River and named their settlement Knoxville after their founding father and revolutionary general Henry Knox. Members of the Cherokee Nation of Native Americans had inhabited the land for centuries, but had fought for that land from other tribes such as the Creeks and the Shawnee. During the Revolutionary War, the Cherokee had fought alongside the British, and after the war, Congress declared their rights to their land forfeit and opened new settlements in eastern Tennessee. By 1850, the settlement had grown to over 2,000 residents as the frontier boundary expanded to the distant west. As of 2020, the city of Knoxville is home to just shy of 200,000 residents and is home to the University of Tennessee. Their sports team, the Volunteers, are well known and people from all over the region come to fill Nayland Stadium, which is large enough to host half of the city for their football games. While the Division I football program draws and recruits from all over the country, the dream of playing college football at any level is strong for many young players in Tennessee. One of those players, William Gall, was playing football at a Tennessee Division III school when he was arrested for murder, but the story of the victim's death is both tragic and almost unbelievable. This is the story of Emma Walker. Emma Walker was born on March 20, 2000 in Knoxville, Tennessee to parents Mark and Jill Walker. As Emma entered Central High School in Knoxville in 2014, she followed her passion and became a cheerleader on the high school cheer squad. Described as full of life and energy, Emma brought those qualities to each Friday night varsity football game where she provided cheers to pump up the crowd and provide support for the players. 
Emma had another quality to her, which was her beauty, as the 14-year-old carried the looks and smile that attracted a lot of attention from teenage boys. One of those boys was a junior at the school, a starting wide receiver for the football team named William Gall. And I'll take a quick break here. His name is actually William Riley Gall, and everybody referred to him as Riley, but because he's going to be a suspect, and I don't really care what I call suspects, it's just easier not to confuse people, so I'm just going to refer to him as William the rest of the episode. Again, some people might question why... In some articles, you'll see the name Riley. In other names, articles, you'll see the name William. His first name was William. Uh, I'm assuming it was his middle name was Riley, and that's what he liked to go by. But as I don't do episodes to benefit the suspects, I'm just going to refer to him as William for the rest of the episode. William was 16 years old, but the two-year age difference only meant that William would get some ribbing from his friends about dating a freshman. William was described as very athletic, but he had a shy and a little nerdy life off the field. He was known to enjoy video games, and when he wasn't running routes and scoring touchdowns, his fellow classmates said he came across as just another one of the guys. After showing interest in Emma, William took it upon himself to ask Emma out, and the young couple started dating. The high school romance followed an all-too-familiar path, with the beginning filled with nerves and new experiences before settling into life as a teenage couple. To most, they appeared like the all-American couple, the football jock and the blonde cheerleader. They could have starred in a dozen different country music videos, playing the lead role of two Tennessee kids in love. Mark and Jill Walker said that when they first met William, he came across as a polite and extremely nice young man. They allowed William to come over to the house and enjoy some supervised time with his daughter, and he joined them for some family dinners. Emma started posting Instagram photos of the young couple enjoying summer days together on the lake, and they seemed as if they were happy and on top of the world. But after a year of dating, things started to change for the teens. Emma's friends noticed that William didn't talk to them much, and while at first they chalked this up to him being shy and an age and gender difference, they began to notice that William was becoming more and more possessive of Emma. And this is really what this episode is going to be about Uh, just like the Gabby Petito case, and we're going to draw a lot of references to Gabby's case, this episode is going to be about the unhealthy relationships that can develop and the danger that those relationships present. And so, as I mentioned, when two people start dating in high school, those first few months, they're filled with nerves. You have your first date. You have oftentimes a first fight or or a disagreement or something along those lines there's nerves about going to school that the day after some type of a fight or or mini breakup or whatever you want to call it so there's a lot of i said nervousness excitement a lot of first you know first date first kiss all that kind of stuff during these first few months and really, it doesn't matter if it's a high school romance or even a adult age romance. A lot of the times, those first few months, people aren't who they actually really are. Uh, and I say that there are cases where people can just put it all out there. This is who I am. Like me or don't like me. That's your choice. Now, there's other people that will hide some of what they determine to be their flaws and maybe they're not flaws but they just see them as flaws and maybe they actually are shortcomings that will affect a relationship long term but they think they can either hide them for the duration of the relationship or that they can personally change who they are so we're going to see in the beginning of a lot of these 
unhealthy relationships that they don't start out unhealthy. I mean, some probably do right off the bat. There's some guys and gals that when your best friend starts dating this person, you immediately know this person isn't right for your best friend and they just don't see it uh, right off the bat. But then there's others that the relationship seems really good, as in this case, Emma's parents are saying they've met William, seems like a nice, polite young man, type of guy you want to bring home to meet your parents, and they're going to approve of her dating. Now, she is a freshman, she is 14 years old, so there's going to be these supervised dates where she's coming over, and, and this is the you can't have the bedroom door closed type of time together. It definitely mentions supervised in the article. So I'm gonna assume that Emma's parents are trying to do the right thing here. They're trying to raise their daughter and make sure that this relationship is healthy. And it's gonna go that way for a little while, but I really do think it was probably that summer between the freshman and sophomore year for Emma and junior and senior year for William. There's a lot of Instagram photos out there about them spending time together on lakes and, and parks and, and just being together. And during the school year, you've got classes, you're hanging out with your friends, she's got cheer practice, he's got football practice. I don't know if he played any other sports, but there's kind of a, a forced socialization with others during the school year. But as soon as summer hits, it's very possible for two people to just kind of disappear together and I really do think based on some of the articles that I read just kind of reading between the lines that that's what happened here was that during that summer between freshman and sophomore year for Emma William began to possess her he began to isolate her he began the beginnings of those really toxic parts of this relationship started to show themselves and this is when her friends are going to start to notice things. Her parents are going to start to notice things. And it began with simple suggestions about how Emma should dress and how she should spend her free time. And those suggestions became more and more like demands over time. The stress of dating and regular relationship hurdles led to several high drama breakups between the two. So again, we're seeing this progression of the unhealthy relationship. Starts healthy, maybe people are hiding their flaws, you can look past a lot of stuff in those first few months together, but eventually as the school year expires, summer begins, you're spending a lot of time together, those flaws are gonna start to show themselves more and more, and heat in this case, according to most people, are starting to become more and more possessive. And this is also a natural progression. There's suggestions like, hey, you know, when you go out with your friends to this party, maybe you shouldn't wear such short shorts or maybe you shouldn't wear such a tight shirt, you know, whatever it might be. Just just a suggestion and because maybe he's not going to be at the party. He has to work. And then over time, these suggestions become demands. It'd be You're not going to wear that. I'm not going to allow you to wear that. And these are some of the behaviors, and we're going to talk about it more in the end of this episode, but these are some of the behaviors of, of the toxic relationship. And it, it's the possession, it's the isolation, it's the control, it's the jealousy. All of these things are going to enter into these unhealthy relationships, and they're, they're precursors for more dangerous behavior down the road. And, and then we also see, because of this possession, it's likely... Emma is experiencing a lot of torn emotions here. She has feelings for William. And, and, and again, I'm going to put this disclaimer out there because I always do, whether it's Emma in this case, whether it's Gabby's case, 
I am never victim blaming these girls, these young women. I will blame the hell out of the male suspects, the guys that go down this possessive, stalking, jealous road and then ultimately end up causing violence against this person that they want to possess and can't or feel like they're losing control over. When I say what's going on with these young girls, it's just Emma and Gabby, it's not putting any blame on them. This happens all the time. It happens to adult women. It happens to men. It happens to teenage boys. You know, it happens. It can happen to anyone. And what just happens is you fall in love with somebody. You have these strong emotions. You want to spend time with this person, and you're willing to make compromises and sacrifices that you might not even realize, or if you do realize, you don't think it's a big deal that this person is asking you to. To dress a certain way well I want to make this person happy in my life or I want to avoid conflict with this person so it's just easier to give in to his suggestions or his demands or her suggestions or her demands so we're seeing this kind of stuff start to build up and this is going to cause stress and friction in the relationship Emma is going to likely have times where she feels like it's too much and she can't handle what William is bringing into this relationship, the the toxicity, and these breakups are going to actually expose even more unhealthiness. Like, so their text messages and Snapchats were filled with vitriols during their time apart. William would often go off on tirades against Emma, calling her names and telling her that he hated her. He would eventually apologize and they would get back together, but his controlling behavior would often drive them apart soon after. Even Emma's mother would pick up on the control William was trying to have over Emma. After Emma told her once about William's demands about how she dressed, Jill took time to explain to her daughter about how these were signs of an unhealthy relationship. And this, and we're going to talk about it, I just want to get it out every chance I can. This is really the push. When I got to meet and, and know Gabby Petito's family, the amazing people that they are, this is their goal in life, is to have Gabby's terrible experience turned into at least as much positivity as it can in terms of getting education out there about these unhealthy relationships and parents will pick up on it and it's a difficult topic to breach we're going to talk about it here in a little bit it can drive a wedge between parents and their teenagers Uh, teenagers often think they know better that, that they should be the ones making the decisions and parents are really making decisions on what's best for their child in most cases and in, in the case of this unhealthy relationship, again, Jill, her mother, is, is seeing this. She's she's recognizing this stuff is going on. She may not know to the extent that it's going on. Eventually, she's going to get a better look at what's going on in the relationship. But she's starting to see these things, and she's trying to use it as a learning opportunity with her daughter to express that you don't need this type of unhealthiness in your life. You don't need this unhealthy relationship. And really, Emma didn't. It sounded like she was an amazing person. She would have been just fine being single or dating some other person. But unfortunately, she was in this trap with William, with his control. And and this is a cycle of violence and abuse that we see carried on through into adulthood where men will abuse women, whether it be verbally or physically or emotionally or or, or any, any type of abuse to exert that control, to exert dominance. And then when they realize they've crossed the line, it's it's an apology and oftentimes an empty one, but this will never happen again. I, I can't, I don't know what got over me. I, I was drinking, I was 
you know, I didn't get enough sleep, whatever it might be, it's just an excuse. And then when, unfortunately, these women will believe it, it's just a matter of time before the, the pot boils over again and they're abused again, and it just, again, it becomes a cycle. And William's behavior grew even more disturbing as his obsession with Emma, whether they were a couple or not, led to him stalking Emma. It was reported that he would often sit outside her place of employment for hours, watching people come and go and waiting for her. And this is, again, just an escalation of what we're seeing in unhealthy relationships. And there's there's some key factors in a relationship. If you're in a relationship where there is suggestions turning into demands, if there is the cycle of, of abuse, if there is things such as stalking or monitoring or anything along those lines, again, it's, it's reaching a, a point in which... It's probably already dangerous, but if it isn't dangerous at that point, it will be at some point down the road. And so we're seeing this in this relationship. We're seeing the progression of nice and polite William into suggesting partially isolating William to demanding fully isolating William to the cycle of abuse and and the introduction of stalking. Again, it's just getting exponentially worse here as the relationship goes on. But young love and strong women like Emma have a way of hiding the true danger. She would shrug off a lot of what William said, and the worst of it seemed to be brushed off by the teenager. Her parents once saw a text from William stating that Emma was dead to him and he was going to check the obituary for her name. When her parents saw that text, they realized the situation between Emma and William was getting dangerous. Jill started to see all kinds of red flags regarding William's treatment of her daughter and decided to take action. One article stated they confronted William about his behavior and forbid him from coming to the family home. As an added protection against William communicating with Emma, they took away her cell phone and hoped the isolation from William's control would allow her to see that she was better off without him. So again, Jill and Mark, they're doing everything they can. They're, they're seeing the escalation of the unhealthy relationship. They are putting down hard barriers to William being able to continue this unhealthy relationship with their daughter. Now, this text message, I honestly think it was it sounded worse than it was, and I'm not standing up for William at all. It's just the way the message was worded, it's a common phrase for people to use, you're dead to me. He went a little further by saying, I'll check your the obituary for your name. To me, it's adding emphasis to the, the common phrase, you're dead to me. I, I don't think he meant it as a literal threat that he was going to kill her. But the language being used there, the, the implications are enough. And just everything they've seen, I fully back what Jill and Mark are doing here and, and trying to put down this, this barrier to this unhealthy relationship. Unfortunately, teenagers are crafty, and a friend of Emma's gave her an iPod Touch that she could use to communicate via Wi-Fi and texting apps with William, so his grip on her continued without her parents' knowledge. And that's really the struggle that I think parents have in in today's world. Now, this is around 2015, early 2016, around there, so things have gotten even more difficult in the last seven, eight years, I think, for parents with snapchat TikTok, instagram facebook all of these hidden texting apps that are basically designed whether somebody's having an affair or whether it's a teenager trying to hide communication from their parents it's just not easy to be a parent of a teenager and 
be able to keep your this teenager safe because of just the world of communication and accessibility to each other that we live in now. And as I mentioned, Jill and Mark also tried to tell Emma that breaking up with William for good was going to be her best option, but these suggestions often had the opposite effect as teenage rebellion and the belief that she knew better than her parents often drove Emma back to William. Again, we just talked about this. Teenagers like to think that they have all of the answers, that they've got the world figured out, that they know what's best for them. Police officer, I don't know how many times I was sent to parent-child conflicts where the child was what Emma's age is going to be around this time, 15 years old, and parents are trying to lay down laws or rules. The children are rebelling, and I tried to explain to these parents that Part of this is biological to a certain degree. We are wired to set out on our own or at least kind of learn by mistake in our teenage years. It wasn't that long ago that at 13, 14, 15 years old, young boys would be sent off to apprentice their trade, their craft, and they'd be away from their house, they'd be learning a job so that in relatively short amount of time, they could start their own trade or craft business to provide for their family. People had families very young. And I'm not saying that because that was that way 200 years ago, that's how we should live today. But I'm just saying, biologically, I think we are wired to challenge authority, to set out on our own at a younger age than society deems as appropriate. Now, I also understand the flip side of that is there's been a lot of science in the last 200 years and the last, especially the last 50 to 75 years that has shown the human brain is still developing during this time period. So just because it's something that we've done forever, I'm not saying that that's what should be done. And I think we know now that this is a very important time. This 15, 16, 17, 18 years old is a very important time in development. It's just, it's a battle for parents and it always has been and I think it always will be that parents will try to impart their life wisdom on their teenage children and it oftentimes has this opposite effect and as i mentioned before it was later determined that william employed the well-known cycle of abuse on emma where he would tear her down via his hate-filled tirades and then apologize to win her back the constant cycle unfortunately eventually becomes normalized in these relationships and the victims of the abuse often see their abuser as a sort of a savior as well and William was known to profess to Emma how he was the only one that was right for her and anyone trying to keep her from him was interfering with destiny. Again, this is that power of the isolation, of the power of suggestion and demand, especially, again, during this developmental time for a person's brain and their social structure and everything. If you've got this, in this case, slightly older person who is taking control of this relationship and finding ways to manipulate uh, the, the younger person, the less experienced person through things like a cycle of violence, through things such as the, the cycle of abuse. This is what makes it so difficult for somebody like Emma or in the case of Gabby to see that this was going down a bad path they just they, it, again it's just become somewhat normalized not, and i'm not saying that that's a good thing i'm just saying that's what happens is they just kind of go well the next time william yells at me i know in a couple days he's gonna come back and say he's sorry so i'll just let him yell at me and that's that i'll break up with him and we'll be back to you know again whereas in a normal relationship where there's healthiness and there's not 
a fight or a, a violent tirade over text message or Snapchat or whatever would shock someone, would, especially the first one, they'd say, I don't know who this person is. I don't like being with somebody who's this angry. It, for somebody like Emma, it just becomes, she becomes used to William doing this stuff. But in the fall of 2016, a change occurred that provided some hope for Emma's parents. William started attending a junior college in the area, and he was busy with football practice and classes. Emma, meanwhile, had been grounded by her parents in a last-ditch effort to prevent her from seeing William with the hope that she would finally move on from the dangerous relationship. The drastic move started to work as friends and family saw a change in Emma as she returned to the person she was before she met William. Friends said Emma started talking to them again, and one even said that Emma told her that her and William were done forever. Emma started coming out of her room, a teenage place of isolation and rebellion, to spend time with her family. All signs pointed towards a return to a healthy life for Emma. So because of that two-year age difference, William's going to go off to a junior college. Now, I don't know how close he was. I think he was still pretty close. I think this Division three college or football program that he joined at this college was somewhere in, in the Knoxville area because we're going to talk about him being in the area here in a little bit. But just that big change in life with William going off to college, uh, the change in his schedule, the change in, you know, he's got football practices, he's got football games, he's got classes, he's got homework and stuff to study, he's got roommates and, and people to hang out with that aren't Emma. So there's changes in his life. And meanwhile, Emma, you know, goes back to school in the fall of 2016. And now William's not in the school. She doesn't see him every day in the school. She's not hanging out with him during the school day. So she starts to gravitate back towards her friends, seeing her friends more often. And in this case, she's even spending time with her family. And, and this grounding had to be the parents realizing that we may not be able to shut down all communication, but if all she's seeing is her friends at school and us at home, there's not a chance for her to physically be with William. We have a chance to put an end to this unhealthy relationship. And, and they started to see these positive signs. But all changes have consequences, and while Emma seemed to be improving without William, the now freshman in college was struggling to adjust to his new life at college and a life without Emma. He displayed mood swings in front of his friends that include several bouts of depression and even a suicide attempt in which he took a handful of Vicodin and drank some alcohol. While the amount he took was not enough to kill him, friends said that William was desperate for attention and didn't seem to know how to get a hold of his life. So we're seeing this, and we do see this in unhealthy relationships, when the shackles of this relationship start to break, when Emma is starting to see that there is a life without William, the controller in this case, William, he's lost all control over Emma, which oftentimes will result in him feeling like he lost control of his own life because his entire life, his obsession is Emma. So if he can't control her, he can't control his life. He's drinking a lot. He's taking pills. He's wallowing in self-pity. He's looking for attention because he's not getting any attention from Emma like he used to be able to. He could just, whenever he needed attention, he could just go to Emma. So while she's getting better, he's getting worse. Then the weekend before Thanksgiving in 2016, Emma had earned back some of her parents' trust and was allowed to attend a Friday night gathering at a friend's house. Around 11.30 that evening, a friend of hers named Zach Green arrived at the house and Emma pulled him aside. 
She confessed to Zach that she had been receiving several strange text messages that evening from an unknown number. The messages had explicit instructions for Emma, telling her things like, come outside alone if you don't want to see a loved one get hurt. The messages continued as a string of instructions. It was mostly the same instructions over and over, telling Emma to separate from the party and her friends, and to come outside with threats towards her loved ones if she did not comply. While Emma thought the messages could be a stupid teenage prank from one of William's friends, she sent back a text message telling the sender she was going to contact the police. This caused the unknown texter to become irate and told Emma if she called William's phone, she could hear him crying and screaming. Then suddenly the text stated that William had been dropped off outside the house, and Emma asked Zach to come with her to see if the messages were true. Zach accompanied the frightened Emma as they walked out onto the street in front of the friend's house, and then they located William. He was laying face down in a ditch under a streetlight, and as they approached, he lifted his head, and upon seeing Emma and another guy, he had a confused look on his face. Emma didn't hesitate to assume the entire incident had been set up by William to get her alone with him and started chastising William for his actions. She asked him why he was there, and William claimed he didn't know how he got there, and then he claimed he was struck upon the head and kidnapped and dropped off in the ditch. Emma and Zach found the entire situation weird and unbelievable, and Emma was extremely upset. She told William that they had broken up and he needed to leave her alone. This caused William to stand up and walk away. He must have had a cell phone on him because he was able to call a friend to come pick him up. William told his friend the same story he told Emma, but even his friend didn't believe the kidnapping occurred. William's friend told him to call 911 and tell the police what had happened, but William was adamant that the police could not be involved. Ultimately, no one involved in the faux kidnapping contacted authorities. This is going to be a very important part of this entire weekend. There's a lot of, I think, between the lines evidence here that you just read the story and, and yes, it's unbelievable. Yes, it's clear that William made this entire thing up. But to me, the scary parts are, first off, obviously his plan to fake a kidnapping to try to get Emma alone. He's so desperate for to spend time with her alone that he's going to stage this kidnapping. Now, from what I could read in the articles, she was over at a friend's house as this was all going on. So either, even if this story is quote-unquote believable, you have to believe that these kidnappers who hit William over the head and then drove to her friend's house in order to get her to come out. So either way... Either William had to know as a part of the fake kidnapping, or if there really was a kidnapping, which there wasn't, but if there really was, William would have still had to have known to be able to tell the kidnappers where to take him to drop him off outside of where Emma was. So it's not as if this was at Emma's house. If this was Emma's house, yes, it's obviously a little creepy and wrong and unbelievable, but it's even more creepy and wrong and unbelievable because... Emma was supposed to be out at her friend's house just enjoying this evening, uh, hanging out with friends, and William somehow found out about this, whether it was Emma telling him or word through the grapevine that Emma was going to go hang out at this person's house. This probably, I assume, William found out somehow, and this set his jealousy, set his control issues to the max, to he realized he can't have Emma out hanging out with friends male classmates and they're broken up at this time so to make matters even worse for william his plan doesn't 
quite work out, but eventually he believes he's going to get Emma alone outside of this house, and Emma walks up with the Zach guy. Now, it said that Zach was just a friend. One In one article, it said he was a classmate. In another article, clearly she trusted Zach enough to tell him what was going on in her life, so maybe there was more of a closeness between her and Zach. But in William's mind, Emma walking up with this guy to find him in the ditch, this is not how he saw this whole interaction going. So this is going to cause the confused look on his face, and eventually after he realizes his plan has failed and he walks away, this is when he's going to call a friend to come pick him up. Now, this is very similar to almost any other true crime story we talk about where somebody tries to make up an alibi that makes no sense or uh, tries to explain their actions in a way that makes no sense. To this person, before they commit this crime, there's no holes in their plan. It's only after carrying out the crime that everybody notices all these holes. And as I said, in this case, there's there's several of them. But we'll get past this fake kidnapping. It's obviously creepy. It's more of these control issues related to William. It's another form of stalking. But ultimately, you know, William's going to go back to college. She's going to spend the night at her friend's house. And the following morning, Emma's going to return to her parents' house, and she was staying there alone when a stranger wearing all black came to the door and started ringing the doorbell and banging on the door trying to get in. The frightened Emma reached out to several people, including reluctantly reaching out to William for help. Emma was supposed to meet her mother that Saturday morning after her friend's party, and when Emma didn't show up, Jill feared the worst. Jill drove home and was relieved to see her daughter was standing in the front yard, okay, but then was immediately filled with anger when she saw who Emma was standing with. Jill approached Emma and William and told William that he wasn't allowed to be there. Emma stood up for her ex-boyfriend trying to explain to her mother about how a man had seemingly tried to get into the house and William had come to protect her. After sending William away, Jill talked with her daughter to try to explain to her that from the outside of the situation, it seemed very suspicious that William was so close to her in both of the weekend's events. Jill suspected William of staging the kidnapping and the attempted burglary in order to get some time alone with Emma. It was obvious that William was trying to establish an emotional connection with his ex-girlfriend but by playing either the victim or the savior role during his faked emergencies. And it was said, so Emma reached out to William after this guy was banging on the door acting like he was trying to get into the house. And he texted back almost immediately saying, I'm on my way, I'm going to speed, I'm going to get there really, really fast. So it's it's pretty clear afterwards, most people assume that and we're going to find out he's the guy in, in the dark clothing trying to break into the house. And after he runs off, he probably had the car parked somewhere nearby. He waits for this text message, waits long enough to be whatever time it would need to be for him to speed from, from his house or college or whatever to her place and and be the savior. So again, he's got this elaborate plan for this time for him to be the savior and jill emma's mom sees right through it sees no this is just one failed attempt after another to try to isolate emma and have physical time with her and emma as much as i'm sure emma did believe the previous night's kidnapping was all staged she i think was at least shaken up enough by the events of being home alone and this guy trying to break into her house that there was a little bit of a, a cloud of not seeing the picture clearly. 
Emma refused to see what her mother saw and didn't believe that William was capable of what his mother was saying, saying he did. Because Emma didn't seem to see the danger inherent in William's behavior, Jill later stated her and her husband monitored for the remainder of the weekend, following her to work and back home to make sure William didn't try anything else. So again, Jill and Mark, they're trying to do everything they can. They see the danger that William possesses. They've seen the possessive behaviors, the the text messages threatening her. They're now seeing William's behavior escalate to these staged emergencies. And and they're seriously fearing for what William's going to do next, considering he's already faked two crimes to get time alone with Emma. So they're going to follow her to work, make sure that William's not stalking her from the the parking lot at work. They're going to follow her home, make sure she gets home okay. They're not going to leave her home alone uh, for the rest of the weekend. And by Sunday evening, it appeared that the threat posed by William had subsided and Emma stayed up late working on homework for the school week ahead. She went to bed a little before midnight and six short hours later, Jill went into Emma's room to see why her daughter wasn't up yet for school. Emma appeared to be sleeping, but when Jill tried to wake her, she realized Emma wasn't responsive and had no pulse. Jill called 911, and emergency crews rushed to the home, but found Emma had been killed by a single gunshot to the head. Investigators sealed off the crime scene, and technicians started processing the house. Now, whenever we had a major crime like a homicide, uh, processing is a little bit different for those scenes than, say, a burglary or uh, auto theft or anything like that. The whole house and the yard for the house is going to be locked down. So what we normally did was we would get an initial kind of quick walkthrough of the scene so that we understood what we were dealing with. But then we would start with the outside of the home. Uh, A lot of times we would take a lot of photographs on the outside of the home because we didn't need a search warrant to search the exterior of the home. And so those photos would still be able to be introduced as evidence that are being taken prior to the search warrant being signed. So we could get all of our exterior photographs done while investigators wrote up and drafted the search warrant, got it signed before we would go into the house and start taking photographs inside and and collecting evidence. So as investigators are going around this house, they're looking for any evidence. Now, originally this was a really confusing case for the investigators because you have this teenager sleeping in her bed and she's got a single gunshot wound to her head. So at first, investigators have to rule out suicide. They're going to rule that out pretty quick because there's not going to be a gun found in the bed. You can't kill yourself and then dispose of the gun. And in this case, they're likely going to talk to Mark and Jill and say, hey, was there a gun? Did anybody move a gun? Because that has happened before where a family member will remove the weapon from the home. And and sometimes it's just because of a built-in gun safety thing. And sometimes there's a negative stigma about suicide and parents feel like they don't want anybody to know that their child was able to access a gun and kill themselves. Now, ultimately, the truth is going to come out, but people are in an irrational mind when they find their child dead from from a gunshot wound. So I'm not going to fault anybody for making some what seem irrational decisions at that point. But once these are ruled out, once it's very clear that no gun was by Emma when her parents found her, nobody had touched a gun, now they have to start looking at somebody else pulling that trigger and how did that person get into the house or how did that person end up killing Emma. And so as they're walking around the house taking their photos, they notice these two ballpoint-sized penholes in the exterior of the home outside Emma's room. The holes were around shoulder height and appeared to be bullet holes. 
and two spent shell casings were located in the yard near the holes, and any original notion of suicide was then completely ruled out, and investigators knew they were dealing with a very puzzling homicide. Emma had been killed by a single gunshot to the head that had traveled through the exterior wall of her bedroom, and the other shot had embedded itself in the pillow below her head. What stood out to police was that the shooter had very little control over where the two shots would actually strike, or if they would even penetrate the wall and enter the bedroom. And this was not a case of a stray bullet or two fired from the street or some distance away, as the casings in the yard and the angle indicated the shooter was standing outside the wall, holding the gun about shoulder level. The shooting appeared to be deliberate, but the murder required a very difficult shot that even a trained marksman would struggle to make. So again, we go through this pattern of ruling everything out. Uh, there have been people killed by stray bullets from a drive-by shooting, from a, another sometimes gang or drug-involved shooting somewhere in the neighborhood. Bullets will continue, according to Newton's laws, until something stops them. Eventually, that would be gravity and the loss of velocity on the bullet, but oftentimes it's going to be a tree, a car, a building. And if it's fired close enough and it's a high enough powered round when it's fired, there's a chance it can penetrate walls, windows, uh, buildings, and enter into that home and still present a lethal threat. But in the cases of those stray bullets, one, the, the angle isn't going to be correct for this as you're going to have... Uh, something fired from a distance is likely going to be starting on a downward tra trajectory or it's still going to be likely traveling an upward trajectory. But more importantly, you have these shell casings in the yard. So you know that the shooter was in the yard when the shooting occurred. It's very deliberate at shoulder height, two rounds fired in, in close proximity to each other, going through the wall and entering into the bedroom and one of those rounds striking and killing Emma in her sleep. And despite the extremely strange circumstances, investigators could see that someone had targeted Emma's bedroom for the dangerous and ultimately fatal act. It didn't take long for Emma's parents and friends to direct investigators towards William, especially with the recent behavior he had been displaying. William took to Facebook to post several emotional responses to the news of Emma's murder. In one post, he fell victim to the rule of three as he posted, I love you three times. And we've talked about the rule of three before. Uh, it's most famously seen in the Chris Watts interview. Uh, anytime somebody mentions things three times or say they did things three times, it's it, it can be true. It's uh, like with all other things, there's exceptions to the rule. But oftentimes, people saying or, or stating they did something three times or, or phrasing something three times is an indication they're trying to convince others. As if what saying it once isn't enough, saying it twice is I don't know either weird or it doesn't seem like enough, so they say it three times. And so he's going to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then other posts, he told Emma to rest easy now. And and this is classic narcissistic behavior we're seeing too. Like his exact post was telling her to rest easy now. It wasn't, I hope you're resting easy now. Or the only thing that's bringing me comfort is the fact that I know you're resting easy now. It is literally, he is still giving commands to Emma as in he's telling her to rest easy now. Now there were those who knew more about William's actions than anyone else, including his good friend, Alex McCarty. Alex became concerned for William's well-being because he knew something about his friend that few others knew at the time of Emma's murder. Alex would eventually tell police that on the day after the alleged kidnapping, William had shown Alex a handgun. William stated it was his grandfather's gun and he had taken it so he could protect himself from future kidnappings and could protect Emma if he needed to. 
More concerned that William would use the gun on himself after the tragic passing of Emma, Alex told authorities about the gun. This led investigators to talk with another friend of William's, who was the one who picked him up after the alleged kidnapping. That friend told investigators that William had asked him how to remove fingerprints from a gun and then stated he was asking for his roommate, not himself. With knowledge of a gun and the strange behaviors exhibited by William, investigators brought him in for an interview to see if William could account for his actions and locations over the previous 72 hours. And I should say that prior to this too, this stolen gun from the grandfather was verified. It sounded as if his grandfather drove to, I think it was the college campus, uh, trying to help his grandson out. He offered to take William's car to the shop to get an oil change or new tires or, or, or something. It was just you know, the grandfather thing to do, help out your grandson. He's off at college, doesn't have the money to, to fix his car. So he, the grandpa leaves his vehicle at the college and leaves the keys to that vehicle in case William needs to run somewhere. Well, in the glove box of this car or the center console somewhere was this 9mm handgun. And after the shooting, the grandfather's going to check and find out that this handgun is actually missing. Now, police are going to know Emma's killed by a 9mm handgun. They're not going to know if that's the gun that actually fired the bullets, but it's enough of both a temporal proximity with the timing as well as everything matching up for them to believe that William is highly likely to be involved in this shooting. And right away, investigators noticed William was not acting like the grieving ex-boyfriend from the Facebook posts. He would not refer to Emma by name, only calling her that girl. William did admit to using a friend's phone to call Emma on Sunday evening, but stated their conversation did not go well and she blocked his friend's number. So, I don't have the full interview, I think it was like two hours long, but just these highlights alone, just they tell you so much about William's mindset at this point. He doesn't even refer to this girl that he was madly in love with for two years. He's, he refers to her by as that girl. And this is partially a psychological response where he's distancing himself from what he did and he can't bring himself to actually use her name at this point. But He's going to tell them in the process, yeah, I talked to, to Emma on Sunday night. I had to use a friend's phone. We got into an argument and jumped my friend's number. So what have we seen in the past from William? Whenever he gets to the point that he feels like he's lost control over a situation, he tries to exert his control. So likely this phone call on Sunday, he thought, hey, I was the savior on Saturday. Maybe he thinks he's earned enough accolades to maybe have Emma get back together with him. He calls her Sunday. He has to use a friend's phone because his number is blocked. They get in an argument because I'm assuming Emma, at this point, she's seen the light and is like, I do not want to get back together with you. This is going to cause major control issues for William. This is going to cause him to go off the deep end, which he does, and he concocts this plan to come over and scare her to the point that she needs him, or at least he believes that she will need him to be that savior. And when asked about the gun, William denied ever having it and stated his friends must have been making the entire thing up. But as I mentioned before, police were aware that a 9mm handgun was, had been reported stolen from William's grandfather, and it, furthermore, the gun matched the description given by William's friends. Without direct evidence to implicate William in the murder, he was released from custody after his emotionless and seemingly rehearsed interview, and he immediately began texting his friends, reprimanding them for telling police about the gun. But investigators had an ace up their sleeve. Alex and Noah, William's friends, were appalled by what they believed that their friend had done. 
so they agreed to wear a hidden recording device provided by law enforcement while they confronted William about his involvement in Emma's death. The day after Emma was found deceased, the friends met with William, and during an intense and dangerous sting that the two young men had agreed to, police were able to record important confessions from William and recover the gun and evidence of his activities that weekend. So this was a huge gamble by the investigators, and I don't blame them for doing it, but they definitely, I think, tried to talk these two kids out of doing this. Now, these were adults. These Alex and Noah were William's age, so they had to be 18, 19 years old, somewhere around there at the time. But they're going to be willing to get into a car and talk about this crime with a guy, and they believe this guy still has the gun. So if things go wrong, there's a very good chance that if William feels like he's trapped or in trouble that he could use this gun to to harm Alex and Noah. So police have to be extremely careful about this. They have to make sure that these guys know what they're getting themselves into but they also really need this because they want to recover that gun because apparently there's Alex or Noah heard from William that he wanted to chuck this gun in a river or in a lake or something like that to get rid of it. So police wanted that gun because that was, you know, in this case, pun intended, literally the, the smoking gun in terms of evidence for this case. And if they can prove that that gun was the one used to fire the bullet that killed Emma, that it's in William's possession, that William was the one that could have taken it from the grandfather's vehicle. And with everything else that was going to make the case they they had to try to find a way to recover that now they are able to during the sting once they realize they have enough evidence and that william has the gun they're able to close in on the vehicle and make the arrest of william and they're going to also search william's car after this and they were going to cover clothing that matched the description given to jill by emma as being worn by the man who tried to break into the house so this further cemented the idea that William staged the intruder event on that Saturday morning to entice him to call him for help. So it's believed that everything William did that weekend, the, the, the fatal weekend, was all part of his elaborate attempt to try to get back together with Emma. And police now have evidence that at least the intruder stuff was staged. It's pretty clear to everyone the kidnapping was staged, and now they've got evidence of him shooting into Emma's room and and causing her murder. And with Emma and William's friends willing to testify against William for the alleged kidnapping and evidence from the stage intruder and homicide, William was charged with first-degree homicide as well as stalking, theft, reckless endangerment, and possessing a firearm during a dangerous felony. The trial did not ultimately come down to whether or not William was the person who pulled the trigger and shot the bullet which claimed Emma's life. His defense team faced overwhelming evidence that William did in fact shoot the gun that evening. His defense instead was based around the lack of intent to do harm to Emma during the shooting. His defense claimed, and it's somewhat backed up by the evidence, that William only intended to shoot into the house to scare Emma, and while these intentions were severely misguided, they did not rise to the level of first-degree homicide. So this is really going to be a, a interesting legal case in terms of we normally talk about first-degree murders requiring intent and premeditation. There's plenty of signs of premeditation. The fact that he took the gun from his grandfather, the fact that he went over to the house and, and fired the gun in. What is really central to this entire case and is going to be central to the defense and the prosecution is this intent element. Normally, in order to be convicted of a crime such as murder, or basically any crime, you need to have intent. Now, they could look at 
deaths that are done without intent and that's usually where your manslaughters come in if you get behind the wheel of a car and drive drunk and you end up killing somebody there was not an intent for you to leave that bar and drive home and on the way home you decide you were going to kill somebody. There was no intent, and even though it's called in Minnesota criminal vehicular homicide, it, it's a homicide that doesn't require intent because it's your negligence, it's your decision to drive that vehicle while impaired that resulted in the death of another. And that's kind of where the, the defense was going on this, stating, yes, he shot into that house, but, I mean, as tragic as it was, this was a one-in-a-million shot where that bullet going through the wall hits emma in the head and and kills her had that shot been both shots been a little bit lower both of them go in the pillow emma's still here today had those shots been anywhere outside of a eight inch 12 inch radius around her head maybe she's struck in the arm maybe she's struck in the leg maybe the, the bullets miss her altogether and they're saying there's no way from where william's standing that he's able to know other than roughly where her bed is in that room he likely very likely been in that room before other than where he likely knows he's not going to know he's not going to be able to aim for her and that's the big thing there's no direct aim in this it's just he's shooting into the house he's doing it recklessly he's putting somebody's life in danger but he's according to the defense not trying to take her life and i think people i think that's actually believable in this case but what's going to work against him is the fact that he's doing this as a part of his continual control and stalking and all that type of behavior and the prosecution and the jury are going to say this is just part of an entire plan that he had to to do things he intended to do something so scary to her that she would get back together with him well one of the side of potential side effects of that is that he would shoot and kill her he had to know that it was possible that this would happen that to us is going to be intent in this case and the jury agrees with the prosecution, and in May of 2018, after deliberate, deliberating for five hours, they found William guilty on all counts, and he was automatically sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 51 years. William apologized in court for his actions, saying that he never intended to harm Emma, but Jill and Mark didn't believe him and told him the only good thing from this incident is that William will be behind bars for most or all of his life, and he can never harm anyone outside of prison. William's lawyers attempted to appeal the conviction on several grounds, but the conviction was upheld by the Court of Appeals. The state Supreme Court refused to hear the arguments, so William's conviction will stand for now. And I did find interesting in in reading this is that Tennessee does have the death penalty. I think prosecutors smartly didn't go for the death penalty. I think juries might have had more problems constructing the intent in this case if the penalty was going to be death if he was convicted of the first degree homicide so not having that on the table i think was a good move by the prosecutors and ultimately in tennessee if you get convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to death your case automatically get a, gets appealed by the state supreme court now i'm not saying that an appeal by the state supreme court would have resulted in anything being overturned from this case it had already been reviewed by the court of appeals but because it wasn't a death penalty case the state supreme court had the choice and did so to not even hear the arguments that were affirmed by the the appeals court jill walker like many other mothers of slain daughters wants emma's case to be a learning opportunity for others like nicole schmidt gabby petito's mother they believe there can be more education on identifying healthy and unhealthy behaviors in relationships 
If you or someone you know is in an unhealthy relationship, please seek help from friends, family, and local support organizations that can offer safe shelter and support that will help protect you from the violence and abuse that occurs in these relationships. Hopefully the work of the aforementioned Amazing Women can change the narrative and increase education to prevent toxic relationships that took the young and promising lives of women such as Emma and Gabby. And before I sign off here, again, that's what this episode is all about. I think everybody, and this is teenage boys, girls, adult men, adult women, could benefit from exposure and and a learning opportunity about these healthy and unhealthy relationships. You know, there's a lot of stuff taught in school, and I'm not going to get into the politics of what's taught or not taught in school these days, but at least when I went through high school, and I'm pretty sure that as my kids go through high school, they're not learning about healthy and unhealthy relationships, and it's a huge part of life. I had unhealthy relationships in my past, and ones that isolated me from my friends, ones that I didn't make the best choices uh, while I was in, in those relationships, and ultimately... There was, at least in the case of me, I was a victim of abuse in my relation in some of my relationships, and because I, I was never educated in the fact that if you're seeing these signs, if your friends are telling you this stuff is going on, it's unhealthy. Now, maybe even if I had learned that stuff, I I would have not acted upon it. I mean, I'm, I can't guarantee, but. All we can do is offer that education, and that's where uh, things like the the Gabby Petito Foundation and other groups are are trying to get the word out that whether you're the person, and I think there are cases, and I'm not standing up for them, but I think there are cases where the abusers in these cases don't understand what they're, what they're doing. Now, I'm sure they do to some level, but I don't know that they they feel as if they're in in the wrong as much as they are and i think they could benefit from some form of education into hey if you're displaying these behaviors if you're demanding they abandon their friends if you're demanding they wear certain clothes telling them who they can and can't hang out with that's not healthy and you need to figure out yourself before you're involved in relationships because this is going to repeat itself with anybody that you date this jealousy control isolation all that kind of stuff so again that's what this article or this episode was all about was recognizing the, the true danger that exists in these unhealthy relationships and i really only hope that at the end of this this is an opportunity for people to talk about this to look at themselves look at their own relationships identify the healthy and unhealthy aspects of those relationships and you know, reach out to things like the Gabby Petito Foundation and the, the partnerships that they've created with, with different organizations to you know see how uh, we can, as a society, do a better job um, with this kind of stuff. But that's going to be it. That's the story of Emma Walker. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.